All right, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. Now, if you're with us last week, we looked at the first six verses, right? Now, I mentioned this, but I want you to kind of keep this in mind. Uh, In chapter 10, it's almost like Paul is writing a new letter. Actually, many scholars and many people who study this book and just study the epistles say it might actually be a whole new epistle. Because he ends chapter 9 by talking about being generous and, you know, God's been so generous. Let us live with generosity. He says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And then he's like, I, Paul, verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1, he almost like introduces a completely new thought. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is what we're going to be seeing here is Paul basically giving it a, a defense in many ways for his apostleship. He's not boasting in all the great things he's done as much as he's boasting in what he suffered for when it comes to suffering for the gospel, suffering for Christ. I think chapter 11 and 12 are some of those beautiful scriptures we have just in the New Testament. I mean, absolutely beautiful. But it's interesting, this week, this Sunday, and looking at last Sunday, uh, we, Paul talked about the spiritual war that takes place in our mind. Like we talked about our thought life. We talked about mental health. We kind of looked at, you know, what does the scripture have to say about the spiritual battle that takes place in our mind so often? So if you missed that, please go back and like listen to that. Then Paul's using this to kind of now talk about those he's engaging with who are basically calling Paul a false, a false apostle. They're challenging his spiritual authority. And so Paul is now challenging their spiritual authority. Now, I'm bringing all this, I want you to see the context, because even just this week, as I was preparing, reading, reading, studying, and I'm like, okay, Lord, what do you have for our church? This is one of those, those texts, you're like, all right, this is hard. Like, you feel like Paul is just kind of giving defense for, for who he is, his position, his authority. He's praying for greater authority. It's like, what, what's in this? Like, how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we as a community apply this to our life? Here's what I want to look at specifically today. We're going to talk about true spiritual authority. And this is not just reserved for maybe spiritual leaders in a vocational way, but how do we conduct and live our lives as followers of Jesus with spiritual authority? And this is one of those things we want to look for in in leadership, absolutely. But we also want to live it and be it. And so uh, I actually want to bring this up. Maybe you've ever read a leadership. How many of you heard of John Maxwell? I feel like he's like the guru or Yoda of leadership, right? Uh, he wrote a book called Leadership, Leadership. And the idea was like, you might lead this way, but shift your leadership to this style or this way. He talks about different types of authority. And I thought this was pretty interesting. He, he actually lists, we'll put them up here. He says, here's different types of authority that we just have in day-to-day life. And maybe you resonate with this. But he says, first of all, there's natural authority. People who just naturally lead, like, it's just within them, you can see they have that natural gifting. Then he talks about positional authority. He actually calls this, like, the lowliest form of authority, where people have authority because of their title only, but it really, that's just it. It's just in title. There's no other form of leadership or authority really there. Maybe you have a boss, they're like, you have that title, but you by no means lead us in any way. Uh, Positional authority. Then he talks about knowledge authority. People who maybe lead in a way where it's like they have specific knowledge on an area to help in one way or to grow in one way, and you look to them because they have certain knowledge. He writes about situational authority. Maybe a specific thing comes up, and this person has experience in that specific area, and they need to step in in that moment of crisis, situational authority. He talks about relational authority. Relational authority is just like as you build relationships with someone, it's like, hey, you have authority to speak into my life. Like, you know me, you care for me. Then he talks about proximity authority. Have you ever been around those who have leadership or have authority because they're close to the leader? He's like, this is kind of proximity authority, not also another strong form of leadership. Then success authority, people who got really, like they did really well in one area of life. Maybe real estate, finance, and they have success. So everyone looks to them as like the authority. And maybe they're a good leader, maybe they're not. Maybe they just got lucky. Success authority. 
Then he talks about mentoring authority. People who invest in others, love on others because they're investing in them, they're mentoring them. They maybe have authority through like osmosis in some ways, just spending time with that leader or, or really just being mentored by them. Then seniority authority. This is looking to our elders, those who've gone before us, those who've maybe, you know, seen a few different kind of seasons of, of life here in America or, or in any environment. And they're like, hey, I have some experience of speaking to this. So seniority authority, right? And then he says this. He says, like, the last form of leadership that is really something we should all be seeking after, and the whole idea of leadership, is all of us should be seeking out moral authority. Moral authority is when uh, your lifestyle backs what you preach. Obviously, like, you live what you preach. Like, you've been so faithful, so consistent, that you now have weight and authority to speak into this. Like, we trust you, we know you, we vetted you. You've seen this person up close, and you say, wow, there really is uh, moral authority here. He's basically saying everyone needs to make this shift, no matter what type of authority you have, over to moral authority. Now, I thought that was really, really true. It's really spot on. I want to suggest one more type of authority. Not to say John Maxwell's wrong, but maybe, I don't know. Uh, But the idea is spiritual authority. Spiritual authority encompasses this. It encompasses moral authority, obviously. It's not that just this, this person's really gifted, but their character matches, but it's also this sense of calling. Just God set you apart, that you're being faithful to the call, that you're, you're walking worthy of the call to which you're called, as Paul would say in Ephesians 4. You're walking worthy of that. There's a sense of like spiritual authority that Jesus says, as I have authority, so too I have given you authority. And so there's a sense of spiritual authority. I think that all of us as followers of Jesus, we want to live our lives with spiritual authority. Again, Jesus talks about this. I have authority, so to have given you authority. So how do we walk with spiritual authority? Paul is basically given a defense for his spiritual authority over the, the, the Corinthians. People are challenging his authority. He kind of has to make a case for his authority. And again, I want you to see this hopefully in two lights. One, we as followers of Jesus, we should be looking for spiritual authority that Paul is describing here, absolutely. And two, we should also embody this type of authority. So I just want to read verse 7 through 18. We're going to finish out chapter 10. And again, you might see like as we read this, like what's here? What's, what's, he, what's he saying? Paul is making an argument for his spiritual authority. And we're going to look at uh, what does it mean to live and walk with spiritual authority. Cool? Sound good? Amen? Yes? All right, let's read. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 7. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes, verse 7. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening with, my, with you, or frightening you with my letters, For they say his lectures are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, uh, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They're clueless, he says. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond limits. But we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Verse 14. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, 
For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that your faith increases our, and our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another areas of, area, of, area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends, the one whom the Lord praises. Paul is just making a case for his spiritual authority. And I just want to pray, and I really do want to ask that, God, we would lead our lives with spiritual authority, in humility, but in confidence and in Christ, and that we would carry our, our, ourselves the way Paul did. So let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for this time we get to study it. Jesus, even a text like this where Paul maybe has to defend who he is to the Corinthians. God, we ask that you'd make your word clear to us today. God, that we would just realize the authority you have given us. God, that we would just walk with a confidence and boldness in you, Jesus. That, God, we would lead and assert ourselves in times when we need to so that others might not who are are unhealthy or unfit to. Lord, we just want to ask that you'd move and, and just be in this place and just speak now in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, there are going to be times in life where we have to assert ourselves. Maybe there's a time in your life you've kind of had to like step up and like maybe assert yourself or remind maybe a certain moment like just of who you are, your situation, your authority that has been given. So for example, there's times we can't be passive. We just can't sit back. I don't know if you've ever missed out on an opportunity like where you should have asserted yourself, you should have said something, you should have stood up for something, you should have done something, and then someone else maybe did in a toxic or unhealthy way, or someone else did at a certain point in time. You know, I think back, there's been many times in just my life, just whether as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, where I'm like, oh, I should have just, should have been more clear. I should have, I should have spoken up in this moment or time. You know, it's funny, I think back to when my wife was, was pregnant with Micah. Um, she was pregnant with her first pregnancy, it's like six, seven years ago. I forget what, what point she was in the pregnancy, but she had to go get her blood work done. Now, I think maybe, maybe I've mentioned this, but my wife is just terrified of needles. She's fainted in the past before when she's gotten like, blood work, and she's had to like, sit in the car and just relax for a little bit. And so she's getting her blood work done, and I'm there, and I'm with her, and she's sitting in the chair where you know, she's getting her blood drawn. And, and so I get her some water, and I got me some water. I don't know. So I'm like sitting next to her, and like, hey, you know, it's, you've been in this chair long enough. It's, we actually have another patient that needs to come in. It's time for you to move from like, this chair to like, this other waiting room. You can just relax. You don't have to leave yet. Just go to this other room. And she's like, okay. And so you know, we help her stand up, and she's like, grabbing onto my arm, like hooking my arm and I have my water and her water in my hands and she's like walking with me. As we're walking I look at her and I slowly see like her eyes like go in the back of her head. I'm like oh no. And she's like faint. She's like starting to faint. And so I'm holding my waters and I see her like falling and I put my knee out. I don't know what I'm thinking. But I put my knee out and I'm like trying not to let her fall and I'm like, I'm like kind of shoving her against the wall. I don't, in my mind, my thought process was I don't want to drop the waters. I have no idea why. But I'm holding on the waters. I'm shoving her against the wall and this guy, this like nurse comes up in his like gown. I don't know his name. I'm just going to call him Fabio because that's who he was. Fabio walks up and like scoops her off her feet and like carries her over the chair and I'm like holding her. He just like left me. Carries her, lays her down the chair and she's like, what happened? And then other nurse is like, oh man, like you're about to faint and fall and like Fabio over here came and like scooped you off her feet. And she's like, yeah, I remember like being held in his arms and looking up. And I'm just, and honestly, I felt so, I mean, it was one of the worst fails as a husband. Felt so emasculated. I'm like, hey, babe, I have your water. Like, I was like, you, I didn't drop it. I don't know. My, is this one of those moments where like, I did not step in. I did not assert myself. I was not the husband I should have been. And I, I say all of this, obviously, because Paul, Paul, what he's doing here is like, I need to assert my authority here. 
Paul's basically saying, if I don't assert my authority here, others are going to come in and scoop up this church. And I really do want you to hear this, because there are going to be times in ministry and life we must, spiritually mature people, must speak up, must assert themselves, because if not, there will be times unhealthy and toxic people will assert themselves. Please hear that again. If spiritual leaders don't step up, there will always be spiritually toxic people who will. If spiritual leaders don't step up, there will always be spiritually toxic people who will. There are going to be times we have to say, no, no, this is not okay. This is, this is too far. The, yes, like, of course, it's the gospel of grace. It's the love of Christ. There comes a point in time, though, you say, you know what? This is truth. This is going too far. We must speak into this. We must step up. We must assert ourselves in our authority. Paul, as we'll see even more next week, Paul's basically, he says this. He goes, these people are preaching to you another Jesus. That's not a small claim. He's like, they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus. They're preaching another Jesus. And so Paul basically said, I need to assert myself. What we would call these leaders, and so often they're called, like maybe Judaizers, maybe you've heard this term. Basically, it was Jewish people who believed in Jesus, but they also went around to churches saying, hey, listen, great, believe in Jesus, but also be circumcised. Believe in Jesus, but also keep the law. And if you do these things, then God really, you know, you really have favor with God. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law. You have to keep doing these things. It was Jesus and fill in the blank. And Paul said, no, 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 it's Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus and. And so Paul had to like step in at different times and, and assert himself and his authority and who he was. And so there, this is like for us, as we talk about spiritual maturity or spiritual leadership or spiritual authority, I think Paul is giving us an example of what not to be and what to be. So let's just walk through this text. Uh, there's really five points today of what we see a spiritual leader or someone who has spiritual authority do. And, and Paul shows us this. So here's the first point. It's in verse seven. Number one is this. We see that spiritual authority has common confidence in Christ. The confidence in Christ. This is so necessary. Look at verse 7 again. Verse 7, and some points will be a little longer than others. We'll just dive in though. Verse 7 says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Here's kind of the deal. There's basically an argument saying, no, no, we're really of Christ. Paul, not so much. You're going to see they're going to nitpick and, and mock kind of Paul's uh, persona, just who he is, how he speaks, how he looks. They're going to kind of belittle Paul. Paul goes, if anyone thinks they're Christ, so are we. One thing I want to point out, just even in studying this, so often when there's division in the body of Christ, I think we can tend to forget that they're not our enemy, that they're also part of the family of God. That we have division with people who are also, we go, man, but we love them. You know, we should care for them. I think one of the best marriage pieces of advice I've ever gotten was, you know, someone, uh, Bob Barnes' pastor said to me one time, he goes, listen, God is not just your father in heaven, he's your father-in-law in heaven. And this the idea of so often it's easy for me, whether in, in moments to forget that, wow, wow, like, we're, we're a family here. That he's all, my God is also your God. And he goes, if anyone thinks you're Christ, so else are we. Now here's what they're really getting at. They're basically saying, no, no, we have more of a transcendent knowledge. We have deeper understanding. We know more than what Paul knows. Actually, I love how the New King James Version puts it. I actually feel like it's a better translation of what the Greek says. But here's what it says. It says, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. Look at that phrase. If anyone is convinced in himself. We don't want you, we don't want people to be convinced in themselves we want you to be convinced in Christ. This idea of having confidence in Christ. My hope, my question to all of you is, are you confident that you are in Christ? Are you confident you belong to Jesus? Are you confident you're part of the family of God? Romans 8.16 says, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
I don't know, has that, has that happened? Have you sensed the Holy Spirit say, hey, hey, you belong to Jesus. You're part of the family of God. He's redeemed you. He bought you at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. My, my point is, have you had that sense of, wow, we are part of the family of God? Do you have confidence in yourself or do you have confidence in God? I think this is so key. You know, I think there, there's so many issues begin to arise. And I think what we see religion does is religion begins to create this confidence in self. Look who I am. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And we miss the point when we have our confidence in ourselves. Paul said, no, no, we're confident in Christ. You're confident in yourself. And I think this is so necessary for us to point out. Charles Spurgeon wrote about a group of men in his time who are just very religious, and they're very confident in themselves. And here's what he said. He says, I cannot make out what has happened to some of my brethren who fancy themselves so wonderfully good. I wish the Lord would strip them of their self-righteousness and let them see themselves as they really are in his sight. Their fine notions concerning the higher life would soon vanish then. You know, my, my hope in this is not for anyone to ever be confident in self, but obviously confident in Christ. Know this, there are going to be times in your life you realize, I'm broken. Like, I'm messed up. I still fail. I still blow it. But my hope in my salvation has never been in myself. It's always been in Jesus who finished the work on the cross. That you're never boasting in your work or what you've done. You're not boasting in your accomplishments, but you're boasting in the finished work of the cross. That you and I can look back and say, you know what, my hope is not in me or my good works or what I've done. You know, if you're, if you're following Jesus and like on a daily basis, you feel like, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Like I'm actually like I'm following the way of Jesus. I'm living this out in my life. It's, it's easy to kind of forget that you and I are just filthy, wretched sinners saved by the blood and grace of Jesus. And I, this, this, the thing that saved me then still saves me today, the grace of God. That salvation is I've been saved and I'm also being saved. And by, I don't never want to forget that as I'm being saved, it's still the grace of God. Amen? And Paul is being said, hey, don't forget, we're also in Christ. We're in Christ. You know, there's not some transcendent power going on. We're confident in him. You're confident in yourself. Listen, spiritual authority, we see there's confidence in Christ. Number two is this in verse eight. Uh, we see this idea of commissioned to construct. Don't mock my alliteration. I had to find a way to say this. Um, but he's like, we have authority to build, all right? We, we're commissioned to build. Look at verse eight. I love what he says about leadership. He says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. This is huge. This, this idea that God has given us authority to build. He goes, this authority that I have from God is to build you up. I, I hope you guys know this, but spiritual authority looks like I want to build you up, not tear you down. You know, you think about my role, your role, our role in the body of Christ is to edify the body. That word edify just means to build each other up. Paul says the authority God has given is to build you up. Some people are really good at tearing things and tearing people down. It's interesting how you can, like, find community amongst just pessimists and just cynics. Like, like, what are you good at? Like, I'm really good at pointing things out, you know? Like, I'm really good at just tearing things down. And it's funny how you can, like, build communities, like a negative community. Like, you're negative? I'm negative. Let's be negative together. Like, no. And you see this happen so often, right? And Paul is basically saying, no, no, no. The authority God has given me is to build you up. See, the question is not what are you tearing down, but what are you building? Paul's like, we're building up the body of Christ. We're building the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We're building. We want to be builders, amen? There are obviously some things we have to call out. There's obviously some things. You think about even my own life. Jesus, like, tears me down to rebuild me, who he wants me to be. Like John the Baptist, I must decrease and he must increase. There are definitely those times. But if people are only tearing down and never building, they're missing spiritual authority. There comes a point in time you go, no, no, like, we're going to invest, we're going to build. 
It's just crazy how you can just see people come together. You know, it's sad to me when you see this in the church. You see some leaders who are just like faithful. They love Jesus. They love people. But people say, oh, they're just too passive or, oh, they're just too this way. Let's, let's put a guy in who's just going to be a dictator. Like, you know, let's put a guy in who's going like, to like, really kind of run the show and do this thing. And like, what you see is so often we like, build up the wrong thing. You know, it's sad to me that you think about this even in the church in this way. So often I think we spend so much time like the church, our, our time, our energy, our attention can be on putting out silly fires that could easily be avoided. Like we could spend so much more time building the kingdom of God if it wasn't for us bickering at each other. Paul is basically dealing with, if you read any epistle, there's so many little issues Paul has to deal with, but he's still trying to constantly build the kingdom. Like I would love to see us as Christians spend more time building than tearing each other down. I think we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot where we're just constantly nitpicking this person, this ministry, that thing, that, and we're missing out on what God wants to build. I mean, it's, it's, it reminds me of just Absalom. You remember David's son? And, you know, David obviously is the king. He's, he's you know, doing a fairly good job, but his son Absalom's like, mm, if I were your king, if I were your judge, you know, trust me, your case would be heard and there would be justice. And there's just constant like, oh, people are un- unhappy here. Let me find a way to creep in. This is what Paul was dealing with. Paul is the only leaders coming into the church and saying, oh, where's Paul? He's not here. He's supposed to be here. Maybe he lied. Maybe he's not a good leader. And Paul is basically saying, no, no, my authority was never to tear down like they're doing. My authority here is to build up. And I want to point this out. He says, our authority, our authority, look again in verse 8, our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up. I want you to see something. It truly is a powerful day when a Christian realizes the authority that, already, that God has already given them. You know, there's, I want you to understand something. I think so often we're praying for things that God has already answered and given us. I think so often we're like asking God to do things when God has given us authority. Where Jesus says, all authority has been given to, to, to me. And so too, he's given us this authority to preach the gospel, to love well, to reach the lost, to rebuke the enemy. God has given us authority, and so often we're like, can we do this? Like, yes, he's already given us this authority. I really do think it's a profound day. It's a very powerful day when Christians wake up and realize, wow, God has already given me authority. You know, I, I, I really believe the enemy does not want anyone to understand the authority you have in Christ. I think that if, if anything, I think Satan takes joy when we don't realize all that we already have in Christ. I think the enemy does, want, does not want you and I to understand the authority we have in Christ. And this authority is not to, to rule over people, but to build them up. I love how Paul described it earlier in the same letter in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, not that we lord over your faith, but we're fellow workers of your joy. What's that? 2 Corinthians 1, 24. He goes, we're not here to lord over you. That's not what, authority, that's not what leadership it looks like. It's not to lord over you, but we're fellow workers of your joy. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 20. And he says in Matthew 20, 26, he says, whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to, ser- to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom for many. When we talk about spiritual authority or spiritual leadership, obviously you and I look at the person of Jesus, the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. And what happened to Jesus? He was crucified by his own. My point is the one who actually showed humility, the one who actually led well, the one who did well, he's rejected and crucified by his own. And if you come with the mindset of like, I'm here to serve and not to be served, know that similar things can tend to happen. And we don't want to take on the posture and leadership of serve me, but I'm like, I'm here to serve. Spiritual authority number two, we see this, we see this, we're commissioned to build, that we're given authority to build. I would love to see a church that is more known for what they build than what they're tearing down. Amen? 
That's what spiritual authority looks like. Now in verse 9, we're going to see number 3. Paul's going to deal with this idea of comparison. And when it comes to spiritual authority, it's very easy to compare. And Paul basically says, it's useless. And he says, comparison will essentially kill. All right, let's look at verse 9. Verse 9. This brings us to our third point, comparison will kill. Verse 9 says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. We practice what we preach. Verse 12. Not that we dare uh, to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Paul's basically, they're they're accusing Paul of saying, Paul, you're very powerful in your letters, but when we see you, uh, you're not very powerful. And now it's kind of like a rumor going around about him. And Paul's like, no, no, whatever I say in in my letter, I actually do. And Paul has to kind of walk through that. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if you guys catch this, but what they were doing to Paul is they're saying, Paul, um, you're not very charismatic. And, you know, we really appreciate people because they make fun of how he spoke, how he looked. You're strong in your, in your letter, but not when you're in person. They really valued charisma, but not so much character. I really think this is still an issue today in the church. When it's like we value gifting, but not character. We elevate charisma over character. And, and this was an issue they had, obviously, in the Greco-Roman world, in that theatrical kind of world, where they really valued that that really that charisma type of personality. And Paul just kind of came, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? He said, it would not come with wisdom words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit. Paul's like, we just came in the power of the Spirit. Not very charismatic, but the Holy Spirit was with us. And here's what I'm trying to get at. Paul's saying, listen, you're comparing me to you. You're comparing my gifting to your gifting. And you're comparing amongst each other. And you actually feel pretty good about yourself. And he says, in fact, this comparison's useless. And let's just talk about comparison. I mean, comparison obviously is such an issue, I think, in any capacity, but especially today. I mean, we live in like a heightened comparison world. Like social media allows us, obviously, to see someone's best. No one really promotes or posts their worst of what's going on. They promote, like, promote where they're going, what they're doing, what they're like, up to, and we get a little snapshot, and then we judge. We begin to compare. Why are they? I could do that. And like, we begin to like, com- really kind of compete with them. Comparison is such an issue, obviously, with many people, but especially in the church. Do you remember the, the issue with the Pharisees? The Pharisees looked at the people and they said, thank you, God, I'm not like this person. Thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector, this sinner. There is constant comparison. Listen, maybe you've heard this. They say maybe Teddy Roosevelt said it. I'm not sure, but it's so true. Comparison is the thief of joy. And when you think about what happens when you begin to compare, what it does to your heart, the bitterness it creates, the jealousy it creates. I mean, even just writing some just random thoughts. Comparison just makes you bitter, self-righteous, envious. Comparison will keep you away from growth. And, and Paul is basically calling them out on their comparison and saying, we're not going to compete in this. I'm not going to compare in this. You might say, I'm not gifted. You might say, you are gifted. You're a better speaker. You're a better community. We're not doing this. I'm not playing this game. He goes, in fact, this is useless. This is pointless. No value to this. I, I bring this up because I really do think that comparison for some of us might be just keeping us from growth and all that God has for us. Like, you run your race. Run your race. Fight your fight. Like, what has God called you to do? Be faithful to that. Stop looking at what other someone's doing or what they're experiencing or what God has given them. The book of Acts even talks about this. Just God appoints when we're born, where we're born, to what family we're born to. So rather than comparing and say, God, thank you, this is where I'm at. Help me make the most of this moment, of my giftings, of my time. Comparison will truly keep you away from growth and joy. See, religion is truly all about comparing. Religion loves to compare. Rather to condemn or elevate, 
you know, we can do this all the time. Well, look what they're doing. How come they're not doing? And this is just religion. Religion always compares. You know, religion says, hey, you know what? Good people are in. Good. If you're good, you're in. If you're bad, you're out. The gospel says, no, no, the humble are in, the proud are out. It's not so much about comparing, like, well, I'm doing good, you're doing bad, I'm, I'm doing better than you, you're doing worse than me. See, the gospel ultimately does not say the good are in, the bad are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. What ultimately matters is not, I need to run my race, you need to run your race. This is what Paul's getting at. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4. Listen to how Paul said this. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's like, I'm not comparing myself to you or to others. It doesn't matter if you praise me. It doesn't matter if you condemn me. Ultimately, each one's praise comes from God. And Paul's basically said, I'm not going to play this game of comparison. It's a miserable game where everyone loses. And you know what that's like. When we're constantly comparing, you feel like I lost, they lost, you, can't, you see them, you can't look them in the eyes, you're like bitter, you're frustrated, and Paul's like, no, that's what religion does. Religion compares. We're not going to play that game. You know, one author, uh, Ronald Rollheiser, said this about comparison. Listen to this. He says, so much of our own happiness comes from comparing our lives, our friendship, our loves, our commitments, our duties, our bodies, and our sexuality to some idealized and non-Christian vision of things, which falsely assures us that there is heaven, that there is a heaven on earth. When that happens, and it does, our tensions begin to drive us mad, in this case, to a cancerous restlessness. He calls comparison this cancerous restlessness. That so often we can think, well, maybe I'm missing out on true joy. Maybe I'm missing out on true whatever. And you begin to compare and you're, you're thinking maybe there's heaven on earth. When in reality, heaven is found not on this earth. Heaven is found in Jesus in a relationship with God. And ultimately, what we see in scriptures is contentment in Christ always eliminates the need to compare. When you are content in Christ, when I'm content in Christ, it always just removes that need to compare. My thing is this, are you and I, are we content in Christ? When you and I are content in Christ, it just removes all need to compare. I mean, let's just, one more thing, just let's think through this. It's just so funny, right? When I begin or you begin to take your faith serious, and we're like, I'm going I'm to preach the gospel. I'm going to fast. I'm going to read. It's crazy what happens to our hearts immediately. Have you ever fasted, like for a day, and then you look at people eating, and you're like, oh, what heathens, right? Like you're fasting, you're like, I feel pretty good about myself. And like, you're eating food, what a pig. Like what? Like you do that every day. Like all of a sudden, once you begin to like kind of show some spiritual growth, you forget that that growth is still by the grace of God. Like we can't do that. This just happens. Our heart is just so prone to being self-righteous or so prone to saying, well, look what the world has. I want that. And we realize it's just all a facade. It's all a fake game. And ultimately, you're, you're really content. You are really satisfied when you're satisfied in Christ. You stop comparing and you stop looking at other people when you have contentment in Christ. I, I just urge you to, be, to find this contentment in Christ that Paul writes about in Philippians 4, that when you're content in Christ, it just removes all need to compare. Hey, good for them. I'm so, I rejoice with those who rejoice. I weep with those who weep. I have no need to compare because I'm ultimately content in Christ. Amen? Comparison will always kill. Number four is this. Uh, we see that Paul is ultimately committed to the church and unchurched. That spiritual authority looks like I'm committed to the church and I'm committed to those who are not yet church, those who do not yet know God. It's verse 13 through 16. Paul writes this way. We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. 
For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to, to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that your faith increases our area of influence among you, uh, among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. I want to point this out because maybe you read this. You might catch on to the fact that Paul's pointing out limits and influence. A couple different times, Paul's like, hey, our area of influence for you, like God gave us that area of influence. We have influence in your lives because God has given us that. We're praying and hoping that we actually have more influence over you, verse 15 talks about. But Paul also acknowledges his limits. I think this is fascinating. I want to talk about influence and limits. Because look at these verses. We'll just put them up here again so you can see it like in just briefly. He says, the area of influence God assigned to us. We are not overextending ourselves. Our hope is that your faith increases, that our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Paul acknowledges his limits, but also is praying and hoping for greater influence. There's something happening here, obviously. The issue with them is Paul's saying, wait a second, we planted this church. What are you talking about? We have no area of influence. Like, we planted this. He's really addressing that problem. But he's acknowledging this idea of limits. And he's acknowledging influence. What I want us to talk through is, as we as followers of Jesus, there's a certain influence God has given us. Do you realize that you have influence for the kingdom of God? I really want you to take inventory right now. God has given you influence in some capacity over people's lives. Every, everybody, to some extent, has a level of influence. Now, hopefully, you can use that, well, you can either, one, use that influence to kind of further your name, further your cause, further your kingdom, or you can use that influence to further the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, of course, there's work, there's life, there's going to be times where you go, I need to, like, build connections here and provide for my family. Of course, absolutely. But there's also a side of it where he's like, wow, God has given us this measure of influence, and it's really for the furthering of the gospel. And here's the thing. There's people who wanted influence for their name, these false spiritual leaders. And Paul is saying, we're praying, we're hoping that God increases our area of influence over you and just so the gospel can kind of go to the ends of the world. Paul's like, we're committed to you and we're committed to the unchurched. What I, again, what I want you to consider for a second is we as Christians meet, need to use the influence God has given us to reach the world for Jesus. God has given you influence. Use that to reach people for the kingdom of God. You maybe work with people, live next to people, have family members, but God has given you some area of influence to speak into, to love, to be faithful, to be consistent. I would say, use that, redeem that for the kingdom of God. It's sad because I think we're seeing in this moment is obviously Christians are beginning to lose their influence on the world and on the culture as a whole. In fact, you just think about the last 20, 30 years, more and more Christians are just mocked, belittled. What television show or what radio host doesn't mock Christian beliefs or Christians in general? I mean, in reality, like what you and I believe, what we stand for, maybe in like 20, 30 years, or maybe in the 80s, you're like, we had some level of influence in the world, but you're looking, you know, where's our level of influence? What is happening? I love how one, one pastor wrote about why Christians are losing their influence, and I thought it was fascinating. Here's what he said. Uh, pastor John Tyson wrote this. He says, the reason, listen, the reason the church has so little authority or influence in culture is, is because we are not the alternative community Jesus has in mind. The reason the church is seen as a tool of oppression and hypocrisy is because so many of our leaders rage against cultural trends and forces while secretly practicing the very things that they are condemning. Whether this is abusive power dynamics, financial scandals, or sexual scandals, we must start by being people of integrity. But we often started with cultural causes rather than integrity within the body of Christ. If we're going to have any influence in this world, it begins with our character. It begins with our devotion to Jesus. 
It begins with us practicing the way. Of, if we truly want to offer the world an alternative way of doing life, a better way of doing life, the way of Jesus, if we want to offer this alternative, it starts with who we are. That's what Paul says. Paul's like, judgment begins in the house of God. Like, how can we offer an alternative community, an alternative way of living if we're doing exactly what the world is doing just behind closed doors? This is one of those things where I feel the weight of that, and I hope we all feel the weight of that. I hope we feel the weight of just going, Jesus, let it begin with us. Like, let's start with us. If we won't have any influence in the world, we can't be like, what's the world doing? And let's just jump on board with what the world's doing. It's how can we offer a better way, a better alternative, and that is the way of Jesus. How can they look at our relationships and our marriages and our families and go, that is so much better. The, the love that you have for each other, when someone's in need, you guys meet it. The way you guys invite people over and love on each other, the way you guys serve, I mean, what you're doing is what the world wants and craves. They want this like utopia. They cannot find it. And we're trying to say in Jesus Christ, we have something so beautiful. All these different races, all these different people groups coming together and we have something in common and that is the person of Jesus. And you can say, well, there's love, there's unity, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's repentance, there's reconciliation. We're trying to show the world there's a better alternative, but we're losing that area of influence because we're beginning to look just like the world. And that's the thing, we cannot look just like the world, the way of the world. Where we're bitter, backbiting, fighting, constantly pointing fingers, we have to offer an alternative way. And that is the way of Jesus, that is a way of repentance, that is a way of confession, that is a way of worship, that is a different way than what the world says. And I would say this, I don't want us to lose our area of influence because of just corrupt character. Amen? This does begin with me, this begin with us. It's incredibly humbling. Paul is saying our hope, our prayer is that we have a greater sphere of influence. And do we realize, like, we were praying this week for that. As we were, like, praying over Alpha, and this kind of, like, prayer that came up, like, God, would you just kind of increase our area of influence for ourselves for? Like, we want to see people come to know you, believe in you. But then the weight of that, of what, you just, of what we just prayed, of, oh, my gosh, like, are we practicing this? Are we modeling this? Are we ready to invite people into this? Are we inviting them into something shallow? Are we inviting them into a rich, personal relationship with Jesus? What are we inviting them into? And you're probably going to invite them into what you currently have. And so we want to be in that people that says we have this rich, vibrant relationship with Jesus. And we want to invite people into that, not some shallow, fake Christian community. Amen? Paul's like, we wanted a greater area of influence, but he also acknowledged like, these limits he had. And he talks about not overextending. And I also find this fascinating. Uh, there's something about embracing our limits. You know, it's weird. There's this weird dichotomy of like, i got to increase our area of influence, but also, you know what? We want to have like right limits on us. If this is not going to be good for us, then don't let it grow. If it's not going to help overall, then we don't want that. We want what you want, God. I really do believe, I try to write it down this way as we think about this idea of limits, but um, oftentimes when we learn to embrace our limits, we also learn to embrace our God. Like when you learn to embrace the limits in your life, you, go, you realize, I don't have all the answers. Like I don't have all the resources. I can't do this. And when you embrace your limits, when I, when I embrace my limits, we also embrace our God in a greater way. We're like, okay, God, you show up. Like you speak, you move. I love what Oswald Chambers said about this idea of limits. He says, God can do nothing for me until I recognize the limits of what is humanly possible, allowing him to do the impossible. There's something about you go, oh my gosh, we are limited. This is impossible. And this now allows God to do the impossible. It's beautiful when you and I realize our limitations on things because then we're like, okay, God, you have to show up. We are limited in this way. Don't fight your limits. Paul says our hope is for this greater influence, but also at the same time, like, embrace those limits because it makes you embrace your God and your relationship with God in a deeper way. Amen? Paul said in verse 16, why? What's the point of growing our influence? Verse 16, he said this way, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Paul is like, we want to reach you, we want to reach the unchurched. 
You know, we're currently praying over 2022 and some of those things. Like, what does that look like? We're looking at different ministries like Global Frontier Ministries. How do we partner with ministries that are, their sole purpose is to reach something they call UPGs, which just means unreached people groups. Their sole purpose is to reach just places for the gospel. And I think, do you see this dichotomy in verse 13 through 16 where Paul's like, we want to reach you and we want to reach the lost. And I think what a beautiful balance. We're like, we want to invest in where we're at and we also want to look to the ends of the earth. We want to reach and love our people well here, but we also want to look and see who's not yet heard the gospel. Yes, I know we live in America and I know we think everyone's heard the gospel, but in reality, not everyone here has heard the gospel. Like, I want you to think not people have seen or clearly heard a complete and thorough and watched it even lived out of people following Jesus, and we want to invite them into that. And that's why we do, we're trying to do different things and say, come on, let's bring people into this. Maybe they haven't heard the gospel like they think they have, or like you think they have. We want to reach these people for Jesus. So Paul says, listen, our spiritual maturity is committed to the church and unchurched. And here's the last thing. Verse 17 and 18 is so profound. He says, our commendation or our praise comes from Christ. This is what matters. Look at the last thing, how he ends in verse 17. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This word commends just means praise. He goes, we want our praise to come from Jesus. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think about myself or what you say about me or vice versa. He goes, when I stand before God, our commendation comes from the Lord. That's what matters. This is so interesting, right? Because you think about the world, we just like throw award ceremonies for ourselves. Like, you're better. No, you're the best. You get this award. Like, we all love to praise each other. This is so cool. He's saying at the end of the day, it's just going to be you and Jesus. You're going to stand before the Lord and each one's praise, 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, each one's praise will come from God. He says our commendation, our praise comes from the Lord. That's ultimately what matters. What really matters, obviously, at the end of the day, what I want to see for my life, for my wife, for my kids, for you guys, is when you stand before Jesus, and I stand before Jesus, obviously we hear something to the extent, the extent of, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I mean, that's the only one's praise that really matters. You could praise me all day long. God knows my heart. God knows those things. What matters is his praise. I could say, good job, you're doing great. But God knows, like each one's praise will come from, what really matters is God, what do you say? Like, how do you, how do you view this? Each one's praise will come from God. Paul says, listen, it's true spiritual authority. We're not seeking your approval. We're seeking, we have the audience of one. We have an audience of one, and that's God. We want his approval. You know, in verse 17, I think is just the key to life. Like, if you look at verse 17, this is literally the key to life. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's this constantly this idea of, of, in life of everyone boasts in something. Everyone loves to, like, boast or celebrate or acknowledge something. He goes, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. He's quoting from Jeremiah 9. Right? He's quoting from the Psalm 20. There's a couple of these verses. Listen to this. Psalm 20 says, Some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 34, My soul shall boast in the Lord, and the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Jeremiah 9 says, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Here's the thing. We all boast in something. Like, we live in a culture that just loves to boast. Like, we love to boast. And he goes, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast that you you know Jesus. Boast that you know me. He goes, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're not going to take credit. We're going to boast in Jesus and the finished work of the cross. We're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. 
Church, everyone boasts or worships or lifts up something, and you and I were made to boast in the Lord. Some men trust, some men boast in horses, some men boast in chariots, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? This is what he says. Listen, true spiritual authority is not taking credit. Yeah, thank you. True spiritual authority is saying, I'm going to boast in the Lord. I'm not seeking your praise. I'm seeking the audience of one. That's God. He goes, each one's commendation or praise comes from God. Honestly, nothing would make me happier to see a group of people just constantly surrender this idea of, I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to please you. I just want to hit po- boast and please the Lord. I want to bring honor to him. I want the decisions we make to honor him. What a beautiful thing that would be if we said we're going to boast in the Lord. We're going to pursue that. Here's what I want to do. I just want to spend some time worshiping and boasting in the Lord. I want to spend some time praying for people who, who do not yet know Jesus. Here's what I'm asking we're going to try to do service, like we're going to try to close out a little differently. You know, we're going to have the worship team come up here, so worship team, you can come on up. And we're just going to try to spend some time in worship and in prayer. I would ask that you would right now, this is the Sunday before we start an eight-week journey, just walking through life's biggest questions with people. Would you just right now be praying for people by name, neighbors, family members, friends, like pray for them by name. And maybe it's later today, maybe it's tomorrow, but you invite them and say, listen, I'd love to sit with you and eat a meal with you and just talk about the most important things in life and just invite them out. Uh, We would love for us to labor this in prayer because we know that if anything's going to happen, it's going to start and end with prayer. So I want to do this. Why don't you just bow your heads really quick? I just want to be quiet. I just want to be still. I want us to boast in the Lord. I want us to enjoy our God. Father, our, our hope and our heart is that we would just find rest in you, we'd boast in you. God, I just want to just ask for everyone in this room that we would identify someone we can, not, it's not about Alpha, just identify who we can share the gospel with, who we can love on, who we're just daily praying for. God, I just ask that you would reach, you'd reach those who are far from you, those who do not yet believe in you or know you, God, I just thank you for this body here. I thank you for this community here that, Jesus, they love you. They want people to know you. God, we just pray just for a heart to just see people surrender to you. Jesus, we know what it's like to be pursued by you, to be loved by you, to be forgiven by you. There's nothing greater, God. God, that we can just rejoice in the fact that those old things, the old life, it's passed away, and you make all things new. And so, Jesus, we just ask that in this time of worship, that we'd find joy in you, find satisfaction in you, that, God, we'd be content in you, that, God, if we just struggle with comparison, that we just surrender that today. God, if we just surrender with pride and ego and self-righteousness, that we'd surrender that today, that Jesus would be your grace and your love that just motivates and transforms and changes us. So, Father, we just want to worship you now and say thank you. Thank you, God, for your blood. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for eternal life. God, we just want to say it's, it's by your blood, by your grace, we are saved. It's not of works. Lord, we just want to thank you. We want to boast in you. And so, Lord, we just again ask, God, that you would save, that you would move. God, we just ask for just your spirit to just even be moving now in people's lives and hearts. That what Paul said would be just true of our lives and true of this church. That we not come with just human wisdom, but just demonstration and power of the spirit. God, we just need your spirit to show up. God, we just pray for those, those things that only you can do. God, we just pray that people be able to surrender areas of their life they've never been able to surrender. That, Jesus, we find our hope and satisfaction and peace in you. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you in your name. Church, again, I just want to say take a second.
pray, worship, close your eyes, sit down, stand. We want to worship, and we just want to pray for those. So again, if you want to grab someone's hand next to you, there's no rules to this. We just want to be praying for people by name. Maybe if you're here with someone you know, say, hey, I'm praying for this person by name. Will you pray with me? I want them to know and believe and trust in Jesus. So take a second. You can stand. You can close your eyes. You can pray. We're going to spend some time boasting the Lord and praying for others.